Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 49, The Resurrection Men, Part 1. The 19th century saw so many incredible advances in medicine. Some of these I have covered in previous episodes. The brutal operating theatres of the day had no anaesthesia. An operating surgeon needed great physical strength, a strong constitution, precision and most of all, speed. Fortunately, during the 19th century, anaesthesia was eventually utilised effectively in operations. It was also used in childbirth. Among the early advocates was Her Majesty Queen Victoria. She was the first monarch to use it when her eighth child, Prince Leopold, was born. And then came the recognition of the existence of germs and their effect on health as well as infection. I think we can all agree that much of those living in the 19th century found it to be brutal and short. Life expectancy was not great. The average age of someone who lived to adulthood in 1850 was only 40 for men and 42 for women. By 1900, men could hope to see 45 and women were making it to 50. If you were in a working class family, Tradesmen were lucky to see 30. And as I've mentioned before, a full half of all children were sadly dead by age 5. So, as you can imagine, there was a roaring trade in working in the mortuary business, but little joy for those otherwise trying to get through every day. This made for a lot of bodies needing burying. Which leads me to the wonderful city of Edinburgh. A segue that will probably see me physically harmed next time I'm there. (laughs) In my defence, I have to say I love the Scottish capital. The architecture is amazing, there are so many interesting shops and the locals were always welcoming. For trivia, I had my first haggis there. The other thing that keeps popping up as I do research for the podcast is just how the city almost seems to encourage creative thinking. I don't know why, and I'm sure it's a thesis waiting to happen for someone wanting to look into it, but Edinburgh seems to thrive on inventiveness. Engineers, scientists and some amazing advances in medicine all occurred in the Scottish capital. And if you think I'm exaggerating, well, the S-shaped bend flushing toilet, which stopped the smell, Alexander Cumming gets the credit for that. Lachlan Rose created Rose's lime juice. Initially used as a source of vitamin C on ships, it aided in the reduction of scurvy, which was a serious problem in long sea voyages. It later became a popular drink amongst the general population. Marion Ross was a brilliant woman that created the modern X-ray. Sir John Napier invented logarithms and also the humble decimal point. Alan McMasters, I'm sure you've never heard of him, but he's the guy that invented the toaster. Alexander Graham Bell went and made the telephone. David Hume, one of my favourite philosophers, was Edinburgh born and bred, 
controversial in his day, his work is a fundamental cornerstone to modern cognitive science. And he was good friends with a man who spent a large part of his life in Edinburgh, one Adam Smith. He was an economist and also a philosopher, and he's often called the father of capitalism. Alexander Wood invented the hypodermic syringe. So if you could make it, drink it, ride it, play it, discover it, or invent it, Scots in general and Edinburgh more specifically were involved. But in medicine especially, well, the Scots of Edinburgh were playing in a league of their own. This was, it does need to be admitted, because they were playing outside the given rules of the time. But if you come from a country of innovators, I mean, really, what did you expect? The 19th century was a time where men, and women it should be noted, were moving into a scientific method of thinking and discovering. It was no longer good enough for something to be thought to occur just because. There needed to be a cause and effect, an ability to replicate a result, and the gaining of further understanding based in physical laws rather than a speculated process offering a solution. Those in the medical profession needed to be able to understand all aspects of the human body. People were certainly aware that you had a whole bunch of squishy stuff inside you, but people didn't know exactly what each part did or what it was connected to. For this, if you may allow me the analogy, you needed to be able to have the time to look under the bonnet, or hood if you're from the rebellious colonies, of the car and see how the engine works. But getting your hands on a cadaver to poke around in wasn't an easy thing. People during this time weren't allowed to donate their bodies to science, so the only legal source for getting one was to get it from the criminal element. More specifically, those that had been executed. And if I may refer to the father of capitalism again, one Adam Smith, it was all about supply and demand. Something which certain morally flexible individuals naturally understood. Who were they? Well, history calls them the resurrection men. I have spoken before about the incredible poverty many in the Victorian era lived in. If you got to eat every day, you were seen by many as doing well for yourself. So if you were living literally hand to mouth and had a bunch of rich guys living on the other side of town eager to pay good money for you conducting some illicit and socially contemptible behaviour late at night, the real question is, would you? Principles are all very good on a full stomach. Because the resurrection men were, shall we say, men who recognised the market and supplied the demand. Yep, you got me. They dug up bodies of the recently dear departed and violated graves and sold the bodies to unquestioning but definitely knowing medical schools. And because Edinburgh had such a prestigious medical reputation, the resurrection men recognised that this was a town filled with ambitious men that would take whatever bodies they could get in the course of greater knowledge of anatomy and aid in furthering their careers. I'd like to point out there was no such thing as refrigeration as we know it during this time. Meat, for want of a better term, spoiled quickly. So when someone was buried, 
speed was of the essence. You got more money depending on the quality of the body. For those of you living in the United Kingdom, if you've ever been to an old cemetery and seen a grave with a metal cage over it, well, those were designed to protect the body from being stolen. These were called mort safes. They were designed to make it more difficult to take a body. This didn't need to be long term, just long enough for the body to begin to decay in the knowledge that such a corpse wouldn't be desirable. If you could afford it, well, a metal casket was often chosen to make it more difficult to take the body. But that aside, it was not only the local cemeteries around Edinburgh that were enduring this invasion. Word had spread across the aisle that there were men prepared to pay for a cadaver, no questions asked. Newcastle-upon-Tyne was, and still is today, a major city in the north of England. It's kind of a traffic channelling point for travellers moving either north or south through the kingdom. And people being people, they noticed travellers coming through, especially those with carts that seemed to be carrying cargo that smelled, well, a little off. Such wagons were checked, and while not always the case, there were enough times that men were arrested for carrying a corpse bound for Edinburgh. In one case, a trunk was found in a hotel room oozing liquid. Yes, I know, that's pretty gross, even for Victorian times. The courier had been delayed, and because of this delay, the body had continued to decay to the point where nature had taken its inevitable course. Sadly, the body of a 19-year-old woman was found in the trunk. But it wasn't only through Newcastle-upon-Tyne that bodies were travelling. The public were becoming increasingly aware of the trade. I mean, you just know that the newspapers were reporting every sordid detail, true or otherwise, as they sold papers. See, you kind of live in Victorian England today. Anyway, any sort of package that was stamped produce, or maybe handled with care, was treated suspiciously. December of 1828 finds us in Castlegate in the city of York. A coach driver had an odd feeling about the delivery he was expected to carry through to Edinburgh. As he asked questions, rumours quickly started among the public watching the spectacle. It was thought amongst the masses that the box being transported contained the body of someone from St. Sampson's churchyard. Finally, bowing under social pressure, the box was opened. I wish I knew what was thought amongst the intrepid watchers as they leaned in to see the contents. Sadly, that information is lost to history, but I'm sure whoever was due to receive the package was sorely disappointed in the fact that their four cured hams, ordered for the upcoming Christmas, had been exposed to the general public. It may be that the coach driver hammed it up upon realising he was in the clear and no one thought he was telling porky pies, aka lies in rhyming slang. Okay, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. So given the nature of decomposition, it meant that body snatchers would work as fast as they could. It also meant that you needed to have the strongest of stomachs. Sometimes a body would have already started to decay, and that came with a variety of liquids, meaty mess, and odours best left undescribed. 
In reading up for this episode, I came into it with the preconception that men would dig a body up, bag or box it in some way, and try and get it to a buyer for the best price they could. But in the interests of practicality, many times the resurrection men would fold a body over or twist it into whatever shape they could to cram it into a container. Gross for sure, but I guess it was a trick of the trade in getting the bodies to the buyers with speed. Doctors didn't just need a full cadaver, they could research and learn from part of a corpse after all. In some instances, grave robbers would find that a corpse had, shall we say, gone past its expiry date, for the want of a better term. In those instances, in an attempt to recoup their work for the evening, the resurrection men would simply chop off limbs on a putrescent torso, knowing they could sell these at a nearby hospital. In 1823, it was reported that one grave robber stole a body from a church graveyard, and while attempting to cram it into a large sack, he discovered to his horror that the woman he had just dug up was in fact his own recently deceased wife. Now, I take that story though with a grain of salt. I would presume he was there at the funeral, so he would have known where she was buried. But another man in the same trade who went by the name of Mary Andrew had far less scruples. With a recently deceased woman ripe for digging up from the local churchyard, he knew that others in the same trade were planning to steal her too. So Mary Andrew hid himself in the cemetery and waited silent as a church mouse. And in the dark of night, as two men turned up and started their disgusting work, he remained hidden. Soon they were toiling away at their obscene task, Shovel after shovel of dirt was removed as they dug for their prize. You can imagine the frenetic pace of their work, knowing that at any time they might be discovered, probably having to work with only the moonlight to guide them as they sought to be in and out of the graveyard as quickly as possible. Not for any ill feeling towards divine retribution, but because they wanted to get the body and thus get their money. So it would have come as a shock to them that as they hauled the poor dead woman from her coffin that suddenly there were shouts drawing attention to their obscene actions. You didn't last long in the grave robbing game if you couldn't run fast and the two men who had just dug up a corpse knew the risks and as such bolted as fast as they could. And if you'll indulge me, cue dramatic scene. As their footfalls echoed into the distance as they fled, cut shot to the moonlit gravestone and Andrew Merrilees, aka Mary Andrew, standing up to survey the criminal evidence before him. Shovels left lying in the moonlight around a freshly dug grave. A woman's body lying unceremoniously on the ground sprawled ungraciously in death. Mary Andrews walks up to her, no doubt smiling to himself as he picks up the body. Imagine that smile of satisfaction in the dim moonlight of the dark, dark night. With a quiet grunt of effort, he lifts the corpse and carries it away through the dimly lit tombstones. The cameraman would slide a camera shot across Mary's satisfied face, the gleam in his eye showing as he held the knowledge that he would get good money for this body, 
and he hadn't even done any of the work. And Mary Andrews knew that she would be valuable because she had only been recently buried. And then the shot shows him from behind, silhouetted in the gas lamps of the era, his back bent as he carries his prize. The crunch of gravel underfoot as he uses the church path. The music score would be something ominous, but also darkly judging his actions. Because Mary Andrews was carrying away his own dead sister to sell her body. Yeah, Hollywood would never write that. So, while I know you're now recovering from my five-second screenplay, I also know that you're here because you're interested in the Victorian era and macabre scenes such as that last one are par for the course. But Heath, where are the most famous grave robbers that we all know about and are just waiting for you to get into? Well, I'm glad you asked, dear listener, because back in episode 33, I covered the tale of Three Williams, they being Wilberforce, Pitt and Grenville. These three Williams were instrumental in the abolition of slavery in the kingdom. Strong, determined men that changed the world. Their actions were nothing short of incredible. This time around, we're talking about two Williams. William Burke and William Hare. I think we're all on record as knowing there seem to be maybe 10 names in total in the whole empire. And again, hello to all the Georges and Charlottes out there. William Burke was born in Ireland. He married an Irish woman but then deserted her and his children and moved to Scotland. By 1827, he had remarried and settled in Edinburgh. Burke and his wife sold second-hand clothes for a while and then later he became a cobbler. As a shoemaker, he was known amongst the locals as being friendly and approachable. He was reported to entertain his customers with songs and even dancing as he worked. Apparently, he was a religious man and attended services regularly. William Hare was, as they say, another kettle of fish. He too was born in Ireland, although little is known of his life there. And like Burke, Hare ended up working in Edinburgh in the 1820s. Unlike the stable personality that Burke exhibited, Hare has been described as being illiterate with little in the way of morals and quick to escalate to physical violence. He lived in a lodging house, which, if you're not familiar with the term, is kind of somewhere you could stay long term and still get the service like a bed and breakfast would supply. It was owned by Logue and Margaret Laird. Logue died in 1826, and while there isn't a lot of detail as to when a relationship might have started, Margaret and Hare were soon seen publicly as a couple. Given his reputation for uncouth behaviour, you might be expected to feel some sympathy towards Margaret. However, she also had a reputation. She was known as being abrasive and confrontational. Knowing this, personally, I'd actually feel for the other people living in the lodgement house. Two personalities like that are definitely going to clash, and I can just imagine the late-night arguments keeping me up before I have to get to my exploitive, terrible-paying job in the morning. In 1827, William Burke and his wife went to Midlothian to work on a harvest, and it was here that they met William Hare. Despite their seeming personality differences, Burke and Hare struck up a friendship. 
and it must have been a strong one because when the harvest work was over, Burke and his wife moved into the lodging house now being run by William Hare and Margaret. The two couples quickly garnered a reputation for drinking way too much and making way too much noise with their alcoholic antics. So you had a couple that were known for being impulsive, badly behaved and abused alcohol, as well as having abrasive confrontational behaviours, and they found a couple just like them. Now, wouldn't you love to live in that lodgement house? Well, of course, that question was rhetorical. Still in 1827, the end of November, and one of the men living at the lodgement house died. An army veteran, the now dead man, had been living frugally on his army pension, which was paid by cheque every month. However, he had the misfortune to die before the cheque came through and was now dead, owing £4 in back rent. As you can imagine, this was a great deal of money at the time, especially for a lodgement house that was eking out their existence in the poorer part of Edinburgh. Hare complained to Burke about this sad state of financial misfortune, which I am sure, if I can take the liberty, was done so over pints of whatever alcohol they were drinking at the time. And given that they were in Edinburgh, and certain grave-robbing actions were all over the newspapers, the two men came to the decision that they could make some coin by selling the body to some local doctor or school. Somehow, the men knew of a local professor that might want the body, and when they tried to find a professor that they wanted, they were inadvertently sent to one Robert Knox. And infamous history started to be made. And here endeth part one. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at Victorian Gas Lamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>